and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The trouble with grace is that all who get it, get all of it. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Jonah into the depths of God's heart and ours with this sermon entitled Resignation, which covers Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 to chapter 2 verse 10. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. So the story of Jonah, chapter 2 and a little bit from chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall again look on your holy temple. The water closed in on me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down. The land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, in the wilderness of our hearts, prepare the way of the Lord. Through your word and by your spirit, Bring life to our barren souls. Lift up every valley, lay low every mountain, and reveal your glory in Christ, that we may see it together as your people. In Christ's name, amen. Father, I ask this morning, would you take that word of the gospel that we heard and saw in liquid form this morning in baptism, and Lord, would you bring it to bear on our hearts and lives? Would you speak through me in my weakness? And would you reveal yourself in the face of your son in all your glory? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jonah, this book we started studying last week, this is a strange book. I mean, you heard it in the way Kurt went through this chapter. There are weird things going on in this book, things that make you kind of scratch your head and go, why why is this here in scripture? You have a prophet who does very unprofit-like things. He hears the word of the Lord, and instead of obeying it, he runs from it. 
Uh, Instead of seeking the presence of the Lord, Jonah tries to go to any place he can find where the Lord is not and fails horribly. Uh, Jonah knows all sorts of things about God, and yet, as we progressively see the more you move through this book, Jonah doesn't really seem to like God. He doesn't like his mercy. He doesn't like his grace. He doesn't like his character. And that's strangeness. That strangeness is on full display in chapter 2. You know, we believe as a church that Scripture is clear when it comes to matters of salvation. If you were talking about how do I come to know Jesus, how am I saved from my sin and death, Scripture is very clear on that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't passages of Scripture that are hard, even tangled. Jonah 2 is one of those texts. When you begin to wade into the commentaries, you suddenly find that all these men and women who share exactly the same evangelical convictions, who believe in the authority and the inspiration and the inerrancy of God's word, they come to this text, and and a lot of them land in very different places. And they all tend to fall into one of two camps. Uh, On the one hand, you have those who look at this text and they say, here is Jonah finally snapping awake from his slumber. God has woken Jonah up, he has seen his sin, and it is a prayer of faith and repentance. Here is a man who is going, God, I have sinned, I have gone astray, save me. And it is him exulting in the grace that God would show to someone like him. Calvin thinks that. That's not somebody I usually want to cross. But then there's a second camp that looks at the same passage but then looks at the larger context of the book and then the actual content of the prayer and says, no, there is something that just doesn't smell right in this text. This isn't a man who's waking up to his sin. This is a man who's still blind to it. Who is still, though he is externally obedient, this is a man who is still running from the Lord, whose heart is very far from him. This isn't a prayer of genuine faith. This is a prayer of hypocrisy. So which one is it? Is it genuine faith? Or is it false piety? Is it repentance? Or is this just more rebellion? And the more I've wrestled with this text, the more I've come to just one simple answer. Yes, it's all those things. And my reason why is simply this. Faith. The journey of faith, it is a complicated one, isn't it? I mean, we all know this from personal experience. You know, we like to imagine that when we come to Christ, our lives, they just turn on a dime and suddenly everything that is broken fixes itself, but it it never happens that way. I mean, you can dig into the heroes of the faith, men and women powerfully saved and powerfully used, and if you begin to pay attention at all to their lives, you notice there are these patterns of sin, these these remaining remnants that never actually seem to go away, and it doesn't surprise us because we see the same thing in ourselves. Jonah reflects that complex reality. Jonah is a reminder that the journey of faith, it is never as straightforward as we imagine it to be, that our faith, it is never as strong, and our repentance is never as deep as we think it should be. But it is also this gracious reminder from God himself that our hope and our confidence, they were never found in those things. 
but rather in the arms of the one to whom all salvation belongs. The God of love, who pours out his mercy and grace on even the worst of sinners like Jonah, like us, and calls us to reflect that merciful and gracious heart. Jonah, Jonah is first an invitation to see ourselves as we really are. If you're a believer, you are someone that Christ has delivered and yet is still waiting for a greater deliverance still. And your heart and your life, it reflects that tension. Jonah's prayer is that way. There is something profoundly right in what is happening here. God's mercy, it is bearing fruit in repentance in Jonah's life. In chapter 1, Jonah is repeatedly saying no to the call of the Lord. The Lord comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, that people that you hate, that people that you despise, that people that you probably know are one day going to destroy the ones that you love. And I want you to go to them and call out their evil against them. And Jonah does what? He says no with his feet. The sailors in the midst of the storm, they come to Jonah and they say, call out to your God. Maybe he will give a thought to us. Maybe he will deliver. And what does Jonah do then? He says no with his silence. But when Jonah finds himself in the depths of the sea and suddenly swallowed by a whale, suddenly Jonah does something he has refused to do for the entirety of chapter one. The prophet of God calls out. Look at verse one. Then the Lord appointed, excuse me, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out. When I was sinking into the depths with a gargled scream full of water, I called out to the Lord in my distress. And why is Jonah calling out to the Lord? Because as he says in verse 4, he has realized that away from the presence of the Lord is not actually where he wants to be. And what has made Jonah wake up? It is that one thing That one thing that when it comes for us, it can radically change our perspective on what matters and what doesn't. Death. Tim Keller wrote this article in The Atlantic last year where he talked about his struggle with faith and death as he faces pancreatic cancer, a cancer that's probably going to kill him. And in that article, he made this comment about modern society. He said this, He said, death is an abstraction to us. Something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. Death death is this thing that is always hidden from sight. It's this thing that happens in hospital rooms far away from our families. It's this thing that when it's complete, we take those bodies and we dump them in graveyards where we don't have to see them unless we really want to go out of our way and experience it. Death, it is always around the corner. It is always out of sight. It is this thing that we know technically we'll face. But if you asked us if we were going to die today, we would say probably not. It's this thing that we think as being in the distance and we live our lives as though there will always be another day. But here's the question. What happens when you realize you don't? 
What happens when death ceases to be an abstraction and death suddenly becomes a reality that has gripped you in her icy fingers? That's Jonah. Jonah gets gripped by the icy fingers of death and suddenly Jonah, he is wide awake. You see it in verses five and six. I mean, the language is just visceral. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weight of the ocean is pressing me down. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I mean, you can picture him tangled in the weeds and the roots on the ocean bed, the water filling his lungs and trying to cry out, but just swallowing more water. And then he adds this last piece. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah says, I was in the land of death. And the gates had swung shut. And the bolt had slid into the lock. And there was no more hope for me. And then what happens? In the grip of death, Jonah remembers. Verse 7. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. He remembered the God whose mercy is always new, whose steadfast love never fades. The God who promised his people that if they ever cried to him in his temple, he would not only hear their voice, but he would answer their call and he would save them even from death. And so Jonah calls, and God hears, and God saves, and Jonah, with a voice of hushed awe, is saying, all of this is due to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In that one verse, verse 9, he is giving you the theme, not just of this book, but of the whole Bible. I mean, that is the cry of everyone who has come to faith in Christ, everyone who has ever come to the Lord their God. It is this reality that it is by grace we've been saved, and this not from ourselves, a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. It is that God did this and we didn't. There is something right here. But mingled in there, amidst all the beauty and the glory of this prayer of repentance, there's also this thread that seems to make all that beauty look like so much rot. There's something wrong in this text. Because look at what happens. It births external obedience. Jonah finishes the prayer, gets vomited out by the fish. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the sermon. But he doesn't like the result, does he? And ask yourself this question. If you were to read this prayer, removed from the context of Jonah. So you don't know this is Jonah praying it. You don't know this is a guy that's run from the Lord. What kind of a person would you imagine is praying here? Would you think it was a prophet who has heard the word of the Lord and run from it? Would you think it was someone who so hated what the Lord intended to do that he tried to get away from the Lord's purposes? Or would you, would you think that maybe he was a righteous Suffer. An innocent man who just so happens to be suffering in the midst of this fallen and broken world who is crying to God to vindicate him because of his faith. You would think it was the latter one, wouldn't you? 
The Psalms that this is lifted from, those are prayers of righteous sufferers. It's almost as though you're supposed to be hearing this and laughing because a righteous sufferer, that is the one thing Jonah most certainly is not. Why is Jonah at the bottom of the sea? Why is he in a whale or fish's belly about to get vomited out? It's not because he was this innocent guy who just happened to be on a boat and just happened to get tossed over the side and just happened to sink into the depths and just happened to get picked up by a fish. Why is Jonah there? Jonah's there because he was running from God. And yet, how does Jonah describe his predicament? Look at these verses, three and four. For you cast me into the deep. God, you did this. It's not my fault. Verse four. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Now, now just think about that for a moment. That should make you uncomfortable. Was Jonah driven from God's sight, or was Jonah trying to escape God's sight? Escape. It's what he explicitly told the sailors in chapter 1. He is on the boat going to Tarshish. Why? To get away from the presence of the Lord. And yet, what do you not see anywhere in this prayer? Not one whisper of acknowledgement. There is no confession of sin. There is no mention of what he has done. There is no mention that the reason he is suffering is because of something that he did. And the hypocrisy, it gets so bad in verses eight and nine, you almost want to vomit him out like the fish. Look at what he says. Those who pay regard to vain idols, those other people, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, Jonah, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You can almost smell that rank odor, that rank odor of the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18, who is sitting in the temple and looking down his nose at the tax collector and saying in his heart, thank God, I'm not like that man. And it is a smell that just gets worse as the chapter goes on. Because when Jonah goes to Nineveh and God saves, Jonah's response to that result, it's not the glory and the grace of God, the grace he himself has experienced. It's to get angry. Because here's what Jonah really believes. Salvation belongs to the Lord but Jonah knows better who deserves to receive it. And it's people like Jonah and people like Israel and not unclean Gentiles like Nineveh. Is Jonah repentant? Kind of. He hasn't turned 180 degrees, has he? There may be cracks in the cement, but this is the prayer of a man whose heart is still very very hard. Someone who thinks that he knows better than God to whom salvation belongs, and it leads to this question. How often have we sounded the same? How often have our prayers of praise masked Jonah hearts? Hearts that say, salvation may belong to you, O Lord, but I know just a little bit better who deserves to receive it. People like me, 
who think like me, who act like me, who look like me, and not those others. Just a couple years ago, there was a major story in the news about a billionaire named Robert Smith. And Smith had been asked to speak at the commencement ceremony at Morehouse College. And in that ceremony, in that speech, he did something that nobody expected him to do. He stood up and announced that he was going to pay off the student loans of every single student that was graduating that year. $34 million in loans, gone, just like that. Students who had been thinking about their futures and going, I have six figures in debt, and so that affects what kind of job I should take. It affects the way I should think about my budget and my future, when I can buy a house, when I can get married, when I can have kids, who are thinking in those ways suddenly have this burden just lifted from their shoulders because one guy who happened to have the means decided that he wanted to bless them with what he had, and it was grace. Unasked for, unmerited, freely given grace. And I remember hearing that story and thinking, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then being surprised, which I shouldn't have been, because people got angry. I I remember vividly someone coming up to me, and without it being brought up, I hadn't mentioned the story, I didn't pray about it, I didn't preach about it. Someone just came up and railed about how much they despised what Robert Smith did. And here was their reasoning. How dare he reward students who didn't choose their colleges wisely and use their money wisely and think about their futures wisely when he could have rewarded students who worked hard and thought well and handled their money carefully? How dare he undermine kids like mine who saved their money and fought for scholarships and went to schools that costed less money? And here was the logic. The money belonged to Robert Smith, but my friend knew better who should have received it. And it was people like his kids, and not those that in his mind had been foolish and frivolous with their finances. It surprised me, but it shouldn't have. This happens in our hearts all the time, doesn't it? He was explicit with it, but this... This is our moral logic. What what happens in our hearts when we hear that someone has just gotten a promotion or a job or applause and we don't think that person deserved it? Do we stand up and start clapping the undeserved grace that God has just poured out on them as those who know we depend upon that same grace? Or do you maybe do what I so often do? You find yourself getting frustrated, maybe even bitter, and maybe even angry. Why does that happen? It's because we don't actually like grace. Jesus Jesus puts his finger on this in Matthew 20. He, He tells this parable about an owner of a vineyard who hires a series of laborers and groups across a day. He hires one group in the morning, one group in the afternoon, and another one in the evening. And so that they all end up working different hours. Some guys work the whole day, some guys work half a day, the other guys work a little bit, a bitty part of the day. And then at the very end of it all, the owner chooses to pay them all exactly the same thing. And the people who worked the whole day and got paid a day's wage, they get angry. 
And the owner responds to them with this. Verse 13 of chapter 20. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to me to work for a denarius? That would have been a day's wage in that time. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? We begrudge that generosity quite a bit. You know, we live in this moment, a moment when we are probably, or at least it feels as though we are more divided than we have almost ever been. Everywhere you turn, you see people splintering into groups. There's us, and then there's them. There's those of us who are right and good, and there are those of us who are wrong and evil. And it's happening not just out there in the world, it is happening in the church, and I would say, I'll push it even here, it's happening in this room. And here is what we are doing in that mindset. We begin to look at the world around us and we begin to label who belongs in what category. There's those of us who care about the unborn, and then there's those who couldn't care less. There's those of us who care about the rights and the freedoms of women, and then there are those who are indifferent to their needs and to their suffering. There's those who are holding fast to the Bible and the truth, and then there's the social justice warriors and the critical race theorists and the Marxists. There's those who care about God's concern for justice and mercy, and then there's the fascists and the white supremacists on the other side. Now, I'm using stereotypes here but I'm poking on something real, aren't I? And what are we doing in that mindset? We are joining with Jonah and we are saying, they are the ones who are unclean and I am the one who is clean. And it shows itself in this. We begin to treat people not as image bearers of God who have inherent dignity and worth, who are to be loved and honored even when we profoundly disagree with them but we begin to treat them as mere pawns in whatever game it is we think we're playing, as objects that can be treated however we see fit. We look down our nose and we giggle with glee when they suffer and we seethe with anger when they prosper. And what is the problem lying at the very heart? It is that we have not seen ourselves as we really are, or God's grace as it truly is. God in Jonah 2 wants you to see. You know, we laughed a few moments ago when Kurt got up here and joked about the, the fish vomiting Jonah out onto the dry land. It's a weird text. I mean, if you're a little kid, that's like your favorite part. Everybody likes a vomit story. Well, the Bible's given us one. But have you ever stopped to wonder of like, well, why is the fish vomiting Jonah? Why doesn't the fish, you know, open its mouth, some sort of like a UFO lowering the trap door and just let him walk on out? Why doesn't Jonah just emerge? I mean, and people pass through walls in different parts of the Bible. Why doesn't he just, you know, emerge out into the world 
like maybe Jesus does when he goes to the wall in the, the upper room. I don't know. God explicitly has Jonah vomited out of the whale. That's not an accident. And I think the reason this is here is very simply this. It's Leviticus 18. When God's people were being prepared to enter the promised land, God came to them and he gave them a very explicit warning. He said, the sins of the nations who have lived here before you, they have made this land unclean and because of their uncleanness, I am going to cause the land, and this is the language of the text, same Hebrew, to vomit them out. And if you, Israel, do not keep my covenant, if you instead walk in the ways of the nations and engage in all of their sins and make the land unclean, then guess what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to make the land vomit you out too. What did God just do to Jonah? Jonah, Jonah's sitting there saying, the Ninevites over there, those are unclean people. They are people who are worthy of God's judgment and nothing more. They are vomit people. And what does God say to Jonah and through Jonah to Israel and to us? Yeah, they're vomit people. But so are you. You are a vomit prophet being sent to a vomit people who is as undeserving of my grace and my love and my mercy as they are. Wake up. It is not just Jonah being deposited on the land. It's a sign of judgment. God is saying, I want you to see yourselves as you are. And yet at the very same time, God is also saying, I want you to see me as I truly am. God says to Jonah and to Israel, you are vomit people, worthy of my judgment. And yet what does God say at exactly the same time? Yet I have loved you still. Because what happens? God takes the means of his judgment, vomiting, and he turns it into the means of his grace. How does Jonah escape the clutches of Sheol, the place of the dead, and return to the land of the living? He is vomited out. And where in Leviticus 18, Israel is vomited out because of their sin. In Jonah 2, Jonah gets vomited out in spite of his sin. That's what the cross says to us, isn't it? Because what is happening on the cross? God is looking at his people and he is saying, here is how great your sin really is. You aren't just people who happen to deserve my grace and my love just a little bit more than everybody else. You were sinners whose hearts were so hard, whose rebellion was so deep that the only way it could be atoned for was the death of the Son of God in your place. You were vomit people. But what does he say at exactly the same time? 
You were vomit people that I loved. Vomit people that I would make clean. Not through your work, but through the work of another. And how do we know? Because we are not the ones on the cross, are we? Who's on the cross? It's Jesus. It's the only one who could have ever prayed Jonah 2 without a hint of hypocrisy. It's that prophet who, unlike Jonah, was driven from God's sight, not because he ran from God's will and hate, but because he submitted to it in love. It's the one who was willing to be made unclean for the sake of the unclean so that he could present them in the righteousness of God. Who went down, not just into a metaphorical death, but a literal one, and he did it not for his sins like Jonah did, he did it for ours. And when the Father raised him, he didn't vomit him out, did he? He raised him in glory so that we would see in him the one in whom salvation is found. Salvation for people like Jonah, salvation for people like you and people like me, and even people like Nineveh. And why did God do this? Because he loved us. The Father sent his Son to be a vomit person for vomit people, so that we would instead be made beloved sons and daughters of God, heirs of an inheritance and partakers in a glory that Jesus alone rightfully possesses, and that through him, people who by nature had Jonah hearts would instead have Jesus once. He wants us to see ourselves as we are and him as he is so that as those who have been loved much, we would love in return. He wants us to find ourselves like Peter in the city of Joppa, the same city where God called Jonah, hearing the word of the Lord to go to the people he considers unclean in Acts 10, a Gentile home of a man named Cornelius, and to go inside. Why? Because what God is called clean, man is not to call unclean. And Peter, unlike Jonah, Peter does what? Peter goes. And he discovers that God shows no partiality. That this is the same one spoken of by all the prophets, including Jonah, who announces that there is forgiveness of sins in the name of the Christ. And it is forgiveness that is open to all. Why is this here? It's here so that as those who have received God's kindness, we would be led to repent. And we would respond not like Jonah's, but like Peter's. And we would find our voices not saying salvation belongs to the Lord with a half-hearted cry of Jonah, but instead with the joy of the saints in Revelation 7. From every tribe and language and people and nation saying salvation belongs to God. May it be true here. And may we repent not once or twice, but with all of our lives, because the Lord has shown his mercy to us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that, Lord, in you we have a God who loves the unlovable, a God who pursues us down into the depths and yet raises us up in eternal life. Lord, a God who so cares for us that he would give even his own son. And I pray, Lord, would you open our eyes to your mercy, to the one who can make the unclean clean,
to the one who makes sinners righteous and to the one who takes the dead and makes them alive, even as he does with Jonah. Would you be with us now in Jesus' name? Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.